Good morning. Welcome back to another episode of CCT Live, the Cape Cod Times Live Facebook news broadcast. We come to you every Thursday at 9 a.m. Uh, I'm news editor Patrick Cassidy. I'm joined today by reporter Tanner Stenning. Tanner covers the towns of Sandwich and Mashpee as well as the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, uh, which is once again the focus of our kind of big story of this week. Uh, first, we'll talk about some discussions uh, in Mashpee also about wastewater and a new short-term rental tax bill. Uh, that a lot of the towns here on the Cape are kind of getting their heads around. Um, it's supposed to help fund water projects on the Cape and Islands. The, uh, we'll also talk about the latest announcement about work planned on uh, one of the Cape Cod Canal bridges, also a, a, always a big topic of discussion here on the Cape. Uh, and we'll look at what appears to be the death knell for at least the operations in Falmouth of two wind turbines that have a long and tortured history in that town. Uh, we'll then talk about the tribe and the story uh, of yours, Tanner, about uh, some federal taxes that are owed by the tribe's leader. It's in the context of the tribe's ongoing uh, efforts to uh, secure their reservation lands and open a casino in Taunton. Um, and also maybe a little bit about the effects of the uh, ongoing federal uh, government shutdown on the tribe's operations. And then finally, uh, today, we're going to take a look uh, ahead at a story that's going to be in tomorrow's paper. It's up online right now at CapeCodTimes.com if you want to check it out. Uh, about the death of the uh, founder of the Falmouth Road Race, Tommy Leonard, somebody who's really well known in the running community here on the Cape, uh, uh, in you know the Boston area and internationally. It's a, obviously a huge race, um, and uh, his death uh, uh, will hit a lot of people. And, and we'll talk about uh, a little bit about his life and point you towards our website for more information. You can take a look back at our past episodes and, and follow along at home. Uh, go to our website, capecattimes.com slash live. And check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and all the social media accounts that the uh, paper maintains. So uh, Mashby's talking about wastewater. They've been talking about wastewater for a long time. Yep. Wastewater management, it's a big deal here on the Cape. Long and short of it is too many nutrients going into uh, local water bodies that leads to algae blooms, fish kills, right, right. water quality pro problems. And so uh, Mashby has been dealing with this at a certain level. Um, and this week they had a couple of meetings involving a lot of boards and commissions in the town to talk more about it. You attended one of those, Tanner. What did they, what did they say? Yeah, so uh, this was uh, Monday and Tuesday. We had two back-to-back -back joint meetings of uh, essentially all of the town's regulatory boards that um, oversee in one form or another the water quality or have their hand in. Uh, the water quality. So Board of um, Health, Selectmen, yeah, uh, yeah. Conservation Commission, all those sorts of boards, right? Right. The uh, Sewer Commission was there and the ZBA, Zoning Planning Board, board was there as well. Um, and uh, it was basically a discussion uh, of this plan that they've been sort of putting together for, I think, 20 20-ish years now. These are called um, comprehensive wastewater plans, if I'm not mistaken. All right. the towns are supposed to be putting them together. Yes, I think, uh, you know, Mashpee, uh, given that they have quite a uh, big share of the of the Cape's watershed, um, uh, has been most concerned with this, and I think they've been kind of taking the lead. Um, I didn't attend Monday's meeting, but Tuesday was, um, again, a discussion of planning and sort of long-term thinking about you know how can we how can we tackle this? But it was within the context of this new law uh, that the state passed that would be taxing uh, short-term rentals. Airbnb is yep. the short term, short uh, phrase for it. It's not just Airbnb, but the Airbnb bill is what it was called. Right. These are short-term rentals that weren't previously taxed in the same way hotels and motels are taxed. Right. Uh, in terms of on on top of your what you're paying for the room, you pay an additional tax for those room occupancy tax, if you will. 
now they're e- they've even the playing or leveled the playing field with these folks who may have a a room that they're renting out or a home that they're renting out on their own. Right, and and the, I think it was a six percent tax, and then there's going to be a two point seven five percent surcharge that would collect funds uh, into the in, into the state's coffers and basically disperse them to um, the fifteen Cape towns, and they would be going towards sort of. Uh, you know, local projects to protect the water quality. Yeah, and Cape and Islands towns is what I think it is. Yep. and it's and it's th- those monies go uh, probably through the state, but they come back here, and that's a very specific fund for our right. region versus the six percent, uh, which is again that leveling of the playing field with motels and hotels goes generally to the state. Mm-hmm. This is two point seven five percent that's meant to stay here and go towards water quality projects. For a long time, we've been reporting here at the Times on on about billions of dollars worth of, of projects that are uh, being planned or needed in order to address the water quality issue, issues here on the Cape. There have been lawsuits. There's been all sorts of reporting on that. And, and the concern is that if the water quality goes, it's going to hurt tourism. It's going to hurt you know housing prices. It's going to hurt all sorts of other things. And so the idea is that you take care of the environment, you take care of the economy, et cetera. So that's right. what they're working on. Yeah, and so um, the meeting was uh, kind of, again, to touch base and to think about, um, you know, sort of these opportunities now that there's going to be more funding uh, going to the various towns. Um, Again, it it did seem like it was just more kind of uh, uh, thinking about the the problem rather than actually implementing solutions. And I know at one point a member of the uh, Board of Health had – sort of wondered, you know, when are we going to actually going to take any action, make concrete steps? Uh, the town, Mashpee wanted to use um, or uh, is planning to use shellfish as well to um, uh, kind of help deal with the nitrogen problem um, in the bays. That was discussed as well. That's part of their long-term plan. Um, but this, uh, just going back to the uh, Airbnb tax and the funds that could be going um, to the towns through that, so that they set up a uh, management board um, that has uh, representatives from each of the, the Cape and Islands, uh, the towns um, on that board deciding uh, sort of precisely what subsidies will be going to which towns. Um, and, and they're not, they're not, and this was, this is important because it became a point of contention to a certain extent last week about, you know, what they are exactly deciding uh, Andrew Gottlieb, who's a selectman in Mashpee and who was appointed to that uh, managing board. The other towns are having to do this as well, and I don't think the full board is formed at this point. Um, th- those appointments, by the way, do have to come from either um, the appointing board, which is the selectman uh, in, in this case, or from like employees or people who are working for the town. So it can't be just anybody. It's got to be somebody within the town uh, government. Um, and so Gottlieb was seemingly the natural choice in Mashby. He uh, is somebody who was the executive director of the Cape Cod Water Protection Collaborative previously. He's worked in state government. He's been a Mashby selectman. And he also uh, currently is the executive director of the Association of Preserve Cape Cod. There were some questions raised about whether or not in that position currently as the executive director of the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, that he'd be able to steer money towards his nonprofit organization, which mm-hmm. does work on environmental issues, including water quality. He uh, basically said, we can't do that. I can't do that as a member of this board. A, you know, there's other members on the board who will have votes, obviously. And and, uh, in addition, they're not deciding who gets these grants. It's basically going to go through the state, which has basically a checklist of how you decide who gets each of these grants. And you have to meet these criteria. 
the board's really deciding kind of the rate of this of the subsidy, right. how much is going out uh, in in general to to these towns, rather than who's the he as he is quoted as saying in one of your stories, they're not picking winners and losers on that board. They're right. just saying this is how it's going to work and and keeping oversight over it. So right. Um, I guess as a as a sort of closing remark yeah. on the uh, on this story that uh, the context of this meeting was also uh, timed at uh, a time when the Mashpee had sent a letter to Barnstable's mm-hmm. Board of Health. They were looking to uh, lift regulations that would have restricted um, nitrogen uh, from going into here in the, Barnstable. The, they were they're they're considering the Board of Health yep. is is uh, considering a proposal to lift those reg- regulations and and Mashpee we didn't agree that that was a good idea? Right, they didn't. Uh, they sent a letter uh, protesting that, um, and more of what was discussed on Tuesday was the fact that um, there is an intermunicipal agreement uh, between Barnstable Sandwich and Mashpee over their shared uh, contributions to the watersheds. Um, that was cited and talked about. Um, Andrew Gottlieb, again, who seemed to take the lead on this on this whole subject and, and the meeting, uh, said that uh, the town is currently talking with Falmouth as well to get Falmouth involved um, to have a similar agreement with them um, uh, to again to make sure everyone's on the same page and, and managing their their load. Their and, load and I'm sure we could talk about wastewater as with many of the subjects we talk about here forever. But the long and short of it is that the Cape as a region is looking at this shared watershed approach to dealing with its wastewater issues. Um, and, and certainly if anybody wants us to talk about wastewater for an hour, feel free to ding us. We'll have a whole nother show on it. Um, but, but there's plenty on our website, capecuttimes.com and you can just Google Cape Cut Times and wastewater and find lots of stories about that. But that shared watershed approach, which is what they were talking about, is something that a lot of the towns are talking about because as they often say, water doesn't kind of adhere to boundaries. It flows across town boundaries mm-hmm. and therefore it's uh, the problem for a lot of different towns in a lot of different ways in a shared way. Um, moving on here, uh, the Bourne Bridge, uh, another shared problem in some respects, but obviously in the town of Bourne, the Bourne and Sagamore Bridges are the way that people come to the Cape uh, to cross over the Cape Cod Canal in, in large part. They can come uh, by plane if they will and, and uh, um that, but that's pretty much it. You got to cross the Cape Cod Canal to get here if you're traveling by road. Um, always a point of contention when uh, work is being done on these bridges because it does uh, reduce lanes and uh, slow down traffic. Last year, there was a, um, a project in the spring on the Sagamore Bridge that caused a lot of uh, uh, people to be upset. And one thing they felt like is that the Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for the bridges, had kind of sprung that project on them. There wasn't a lot of uh, lead time for people to prepare, and it was supposed to be 55 days of work. They did do it in a much shorter time frame. Um, and then they said, oh, and we have a project coming in the fall on the Bourne Bridge. Tourism officials, you know, state legislators uh, and, and other officials on the Cape said, wait a second, this is two major projects on those bridges coming onto the Cape in the same year. Those shoulder seasons are important. The uh, uh, fall shoulder season for the Cape is its second busiest time, obviously the summer being the busiest. Um, and they said, can you just hold off uh, on this project? Um, the Army Corps looked at it and said, okay, we'll hold off. We'll do it in uh, the next spring. We're, we're basically almost there at this point. They're going to be doing this work uh, coming up in the spring. Um, it, again, had originally planned, been planned to last till uh, uh, begin after Labor Day last year. Um, but they're going to be probably reducing some lanes, and they're going to be doing a lot of uh, different work that's in this story by Ethan Genter, 
um, uh, in today's paper. Um, and they're uh, saying they, I think that they expect it to go for a couple of weeks. I'll have to look at the, the project here. But we did check in, Ethan checked in with Wendy Northcross, the CEO of the Cod Chamber of Commerce. And she said, listen, this is what we asked for. Um, the work's supposed to go on, uh, start in late March and go through early April, wrapping up by Memorial Day, obviously, in, in time for the summer crowds mm -hmm. to start pouring over the bridges. Um, but Wendy Northcross did say, this is what we asked for. So they're doing doing that, which is good. But she said they're really focused on pushing the Army Corps and, and seeking resources for the Army Corps to move forward with a replacement of those two bridges. They're too skinny. They're obsolete. They're always doing work on them. Tourism officials and, and other officials here on the Cape want to see those bridges replaced with something more modern, mm -hmm. something more efficient, and uh, something that doesn't have to have repair work done every year. <laughs> right. So yep. we'll see where that goes. But inevitably, uh, we'll probably get some complaints, certainly from folks who are traveling over the bridges as those lanes are reduced. Uh, I think some folks would say, well, if it had all been done in one year, that would have been a big hit for one year. So we'll uh, take what we can get there. Um, another long-running story in Falmouth. Uh, there were there were two turbines that the town had erected in uh, on the town's wastewater treatment uh, facility uh, property in 2010 and 2012 is where, and I think they both went up. Um, they triggered lots of complaints from neighbors, lawsuits. We've been reporting on this for quite a long time uh, now. Uh, finally, a judge had had uh, said that the two turbines were a nuisance and had to be essentially shut down. Town's been struggling with what to do with them. They're just kind of sitting there, not operating at this point. And there was a meeting this week where the board of selectmen finally voted and said, "Listen, this is it. These turbines are not going to operate within our town ever again," um, which was a big deal. It's kind of the the again death knell for the operations of these turbines in town. They're still trying to figure out what to do with them. I think one of them they've they've already come to the conclusion that it's not really ever going to operate again, and they'll probably. Uh, they were talking about using it as parts. They were talking about moving the other one on the wastewater treatment property. Uh, but I think that automatically raised a lot of concerns with neighbors who were who had dealt with it on that property before. And so now uh, they're talking about maybe an RFP or RFPs uh, request for proposals for two different ideas. One is to have them moved or one of them moved to another property in another town somewhere else. And the town of Falmouth still own and operate them. Another is to essentially have somebody else take them away or take it away and, and operate it themselves. Uh, so we'll see where that goes, see what the responses are. Uh, certainly these turbines have a history and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see who kind of takes them up on that offer. Um, some uh, public uh, members of the public who were at this meeting essentially said, we don't care what you do with them, just get rid of them uh, more or less. And, and it's time to kind of cut your losses. They do have to figure out how to pay for this. And this is, uh, as some selectmen said, going to be a huge hit to the taxpayer. Um, but again, neighbors in that area who have complained about health uh, problems from these turbines for quite a while uh, probably couldn't have happened soon enough for them. Um, big story you had uh, in Monday's paper here, Tanner, about uh, the leader of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Why don't you uh, lay this out for us uh, from the beginning as to what this story was about? So um, we uh, got a hold of a federal tax lien that was noticed uh, or, or a notice that was filed uh, last year in Taunton uh, with the Registry of Deeds there that showed that um, the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Council Chairman Cedric Cromwell, again, who is the um, political leader of the tribe um, owed uh, or owes uh, about $37,000 in unpaid taxes to the IRS. Um, this was something that we looked at and, and 
figured it was uh, newsworthy within the context of the tribe's overall debt situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was Cromwell and his wife, Cheryl Cromwell, yes, to be clear, who the, owed the money jointly. Um, uh, she's also a tribal council member. She is, yes. Uh, good. That's a good detail there because we then decided to uh, crack open uh, their ongoing uh, divorce proceeding, the file, which is out of Taunton as well. Um, and what we found was uh, disturbing, and we, I thought, again, uh, we thought uh, newsworthy within the context of the tribe's overall debt situation, which we can we can get into that as well. But and, and it can, uh, a contentious. I mean, a divorces will be contentious. Right. They're typically uh, private affairs. I think that the difference here, certainly when looking at this federal tax situation and some of the allegations within the divorce itself, is as you said, in in the context of the tribe, which is struggling financially. This is the leader of the tribe. Um, whenever you look at leaders, and, and certainly when we do stories about uh, people running for various boards of selectmen and, and uh, other leadership positions, uh, we look at you know things that are brought to us in terms of whether it's a, a criminal history, and there's nothing here that, that's uh, Suggesting indicating that, right. criminal, um, but certainly within the context of this civil divorce proceeding and within the context of this uh, civil lien uh, against uh, the couple's property, um, it raised questions and and uh, Cedric Cromwell's wife, Cheryl, ra- raises questions within the divorce about his management of finances. Right. Management of finances is a big deal for the tribe uh, right. because they are looking at a potential billion dollar casino that they want to operate. Um, and they are, you know, currently uh, in debt or it's been written off by Genting Malaysia, which is their backer, yep. uh, to the tune of $440 million, which is much, a much larger debt, obviously. Right. And we, so we figured that that, that um, is something that we've been reporting on for a number of years since uh, Cedric has, has, um, uh, was elected originally in 2009, we've slowly and incrementally reported on this growing debt figure, and it's, it's reached a point now uh, where it is, I think, of grave concern and of certainly of, of interest to us and to, to anyone else. Um, we can't access um, you know, their financial records. Uh, tribe members have had difficulties um, you know, getting financial information that reflects what's actually going on with this reported debt figure. The only way we know uh, of the debt figure itself is through Genting uh, and, and its filings. Um, but it's, uh, you know, a, and, you know, it's an ongoing situation with the tribe that seems to be getting worse and worse. And we don't know how bad it is now, but it, it um, you know, so within, with that in mind, um, we thought that, you know, going to this divorce filing and finding, um, you know, um, language um, from uh, Cheryl's attorney. Cheryl is Cedric's wife. They're going through this divorce. Cheryl's attorney wrote um, that her husband has a, quote, documented history and pattern of making unilateral financial decisions not involving Cheryl and family finances, mismanaging finances by overspending or squandering funds. Again, I reached out to her attorney numerous times throughout the weeks, uh, over the weeks here that we've been working on the story. Uh, and uh, could not uh, reach him. Um, uh, Cedric was also uh, held in contempt uh, for failing to pay household bills, uh, legal fees that he was required uh, to pay, as well as uh, to produce uh, financial documents per discovery of the case, which he hadn't done uh, initially. Um, uh, And uh, basically where it ended up is that uh, uh, he wasn't 
wasn't cooperating at all in this proceeding. Uh, wasn't giving over any of the documents. And, and interestingly, uh, Cheryl's attorney, Cheryl's a tribe member, um, uh, Cheryl's attorney attempted to subpoena the keeper of records for the tribe uh, to get financial information from the tribe, employment records, Cedric's employment records, uh, and uh, um, uh, a tribal attorney appeared in court attempting to quash that subpoena, uh, seemingly uh, to some success, although we can't exactly find that out. Um, so this is there's an interesting um, overlap here with uh, the state now, uh, or I should say the, the, the municipality, looking into the tribe's situation or trying to access uh, tribal records, having a tribal attorney appear in court, uh, invoking something called sovereign immunity, which is something that uh, tribes do uh, to shield themselves from, from litigation. Well, and, and, and they, they argue they have the right to do that because the tribe is a sovereign nation, technically right. a sovereign nation under, under findings by the, you know, the U.S. government. And that means that they are like the U.S. government in terms of a lot of different things that they do and in terms of their control of their own records. Mm -hmm. uh, this, you know, uh, is different from, say, when you're dealing with a town, state or the federal government. Um, it's not always easy to get public records from from all of those entities, but there is a process that you can go through where you can seek a public record. They either claim some sort of exemption or they hand it over. Um, and then you, there's an appeal process. You can go to court. You can do all these things. With the tribe, it's different because they're a sovereign nation. They have their own rules as far as uh, public records, and they can choose, uh, you know, to uh, produce records or not in in terms of these things. And certainly in this case, it, it's evident, and we've heard this before, that tribal members themselves aren't able to access these public records. So when you're looking at the tribe, and and again, as you mentioned a couple, a couple times, in the context of this. Um, larger attempt to secure their reservation land. They're fighting the federal government. Uh, the Interior Department uh, decided not to move forward with uh, a, a decision that would have held their land in trust, a decision that was made in the Obama era. Now the Trump administration has decided not to move forward with that decision. Cedric Cromwell and his wife owe federal taxes to the federal government. And when you're trying to find out what's going on with this project that will have ramifications for certainly the town of Taunton and certainly the town of Mashpee, because if the project is successful, tribe members, you know, have opportunities for gainful employment. There's services that the tribe can provide with the money that comes in from the casino. They have schools, they have a, uh, you know, health services, they have uh, all sorts of housing uh, opportunities that, that will become uh, uh available to them at that point. And if that doesn't happen, the the uh, ripple effect of that is going to be felt not only in Mashpee, not only in Taunton, but on the Cape and in southeastern Massachusetts more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to find out information uh, is something that we do for a living. And, and uh, again, it's different when it's something like the tribe, which has a sovereign status. status. We're having to come at it from different angles in terms of getting that information one of these angles being through uh, whether it's the federal tax uh, uh, documents that you were looking at, uh, the divorce proceedings, um, and other ways to try and get a fuller picture of the status of the tribe through this, through the you know financial status, certainly of its leaders. They have uh, salaries that they, they draw from the tribe, and what's going on with those uh, is an open question. So that was the process. And, and again, what we found out is that, that certainly the leader of this tribe that's in financial 
uh, uh, difficulties, is himself in financial difficulties. And uh, we did reach out to, to uh, uh, the chairman of the tribe, uh, Cedric Karamo, and he did respond and say, you know, the divorce is a private matter. I have a you know, non-disclosure agreement. Can't even right. talk about it if I wanted to. Um, you know, there were some companies that were referenced right. uh, as well in that in that divorce proceeding. What what do we know about those companies? Uh, very little. Uh, we know that they were cited as uh, um, his personal companies. Which again, when you when you think about the tribe as a as an amalgam of of company and government, it's a. Uh, um, you know, its leader, its political leader, who is supposed to be accountable to its uh, members, um, has uh, personal businesses here that were cited in the in the divorce filing. Um, there were subpoenas issued for uh, to obtain financial information uh, about these companies: New Light Concepts LLC, Lightworks LLC, One Nation LLC, and and uh, another company, uh, which uh, he uh, actually. Uh, drew funds from to to help this was platform eight platform which, eight which he uh, has fifty thousand dollars that according to the, again these uh, documents in probate court right uh, that he had uh, uh, received as a consultant for that company is what it says right uh, and so we don't we don't uh, know much uh, about these companies except that they are you know limited liability corporations several of them were incorporated uh, in 2017 out of delaware um, not unusual for companies to be incorporated out of Delaware. It's a it's an easier place to incorporate, um, and there are some different regulations down there in terms of incorporating companies. You'll often see companies incorporated out of Delaware, um, but but again, we don't know what their purpose is. Mm -hmm. You did ask uh, the chairman about this. He did. Yeah, he did respond, and he said that the the companies themselves are unrelated to the tribe and Genting, which again we have to keep in mind that that Genting. Um, while it is the financial backer of the tribe, it was um, paying for obviously the pre-construction costs for the casino. Genting was also and is still uh, to some degree funding tribal government operations, um, funding uh, two separate uh, lawsuits at this point, um, fighting the tribes, uh, uh, fighting the the Interior Department neighbors in Taunton who sued uh, the Interior initially. Um, and lobbying efforts right now uh, that so uh, actually are funding at, one lawsuit and funding the opposition to another lawsuit, right? If you will, and then yep. lobbying efforts, which you've looked at in terms of the amount of money that's been spent on lobbying in the millions. In the millions, uh, is yep. what we're talking about, and all that money starts to add up, and you start to get a picture of where this four hundred forty million dollar debt comes from. The tribe uh, is quick to point out uh, that that debt is only recoverable from Genting, and this is this is only something that we have from the tribe, but only recoverable from Genting if the tribe is successful with the casino. Right. Again, the casino success, money starts flowing, they can pay back that debt. If the casino is not successful, the tribe's saying that that debt is not something that the tribe will be responsible for. It doesn't leave them with much right. at that point, but right. but at least they wouldn't be uh, have that debt hanging over them, according to them. Um, and, and then to broaden the context even further, uh, we, we have, uh, if nobody's aware at this point, an ongoing federal, sh uh, partial federal uh, government shutdown. And the tribe, uh, who you had reached out to last week, initially didn't respond uh, to kind of request for, or, or at least through uh, the, the uh, chairmanship, didn't respond to a request for more information about what that uh, shutdown meant. But this week they issued a statement uh, kind of laying out a little bit more about what that shutdown means to them. And again, this is in the context of them already struggling financially. All of a sudden, they're having some other issues that have to do with the shutdown. What, what did they say in that statement? Right, and it's uh, funny because you just mentioned all of those programs that would uh, that would be bolstered should the tribe 
um, build a casino, you've got, you know, housing programs. Um, the tribe is saying now, the chairman's uh, issued a statement that said that uh, a bunch of its operations and programs are uh, affected by the ongoing uh, shutdown, including housing programs, the food pantry, um, its regular communication with federal officials. Um, We're all having problems getting into right. federal <laughs> officials at this point, so I can feel their pain there. Right. Um, uh, more specifically, uh, the tribe went, uh, went on to say that uh, it has natural resources, or it has several funding submissions with the federal government worth about $240,000, uh, and they're uh, looking for or uh, trying to get an update on the status of those mm -hmm. submissions. Um, there's also a U.S. Fish and Wildlife grant uh, that's uh, crucial to maintaining the tribe's shellfish hatchery. Um, that's also in limbo. Um, and um, uh, housing projects, or I should say housing programs, um, it says it cannot draw funds from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development for its programs. Um, and then it just cites uh, communication with, with federal officials, which we're in the same boat with yes, that. We've exactly. reached out to them. Um, nobody is picking up the phone at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, mm -hmm. um, uh, of course, as part of this ongoing partial government shutdown. Yep. Um, so again, it yep. speaks to, I, I, I think, all of this speaks to, in, in, in aggregate, to all the different pressures that, are, uh, that are, uh, the tribe is facing, um, whether it be from their financial backers, whether it be from the government shutdown, whether it be from, you know, kind of internal pressures in terms of the politics within the tribe, litigation from, from the litigation, legal pressures, whether it be from personal pressures, you know, on the leader himself. Um, so it, it, it will be something we'll be following and, and again, trying to find out more um, uh, for the sake of understanding what the potential ramifications uh, of this uh, all of this is for the tribe, which, you know, this is the tribe that was the tribe that greeted the pilgrims that was, you know, uh, considered the, the first tribe of the first light. I mean, they're, they're kind of, uh, iconic in that, in that way. And, and obviously they have a, a great deal of stake here in terms of their culture, in terms of their history, in terms of, um, their people. Um, and then also, again, those larger ramifications for the community in Mashpee, the Cape, southeastern Massachusetts, um, and larger ramifications for tribes across the country in terms right. of how this plays out. And it, it, uh, without uh, going too much into it, it also is the case that uh, there's a bill that's being that's been filed, refiled, uh, that is seeking to secure the tribe's land and would essentially take care of a lot of this because it would secure their land. It would uh, bar other legal challenges to that reservation. They would be able to move forward with the casino. That would be a relief valve. But there are political pressures coming from other parts of the country and other states in terms of, of that bill. And certainly the political context at, in D.C. is something uh, that we always have to take into account. Never easy to get anything done there. So we'll see where that goes. But we'll be following Tanner. We'll be following it. Definitely uh, follow his stories uh, as you're as you're looking for more information there. Um, We'll leave you today with some news that uh, we just broke this morning at, at our website, um, and that was the uh, death of uh, the founder of the Falmouth Road Race, Tommy Leonard. Uh, he died at 85 after uh, an illness. He was at the JML Care Center in Falmouth. Um, and this is a man who started the seven-mile race from Woods Hole to Falmouth Heights. He started in 1973 as a, as a fundraiser for the Falmouth High School uh, girls track team uh, to pay for their expenses. Uh, and he kind of had this dream of making it bigger. There were 92 people at the start of that uh, race uh, that was on actually Leonard's 40th birthday on August 15th. And 
this race has uh, ballooned to international proportions. I mean, this is a 12,000 runners, uh, more or less, uh, that run every year in this. Uh, international runners of, of great acclaim come and run in this. It's a big deal. I actually got an opportunity to run it the last couple of years. I never thought I would run the Falmouth Road Race. Part <laughs> of it was because I just don't like large crowds. Um, but is it an experience that as a runner or as a, a spectator or, or, or anybody involved, uh, it's worth going out to do, it's worth going out to see, um, and a great deal of fun, and it's this kind of community feel to it even at its large size at this point. And Tommy Leonard was the man who uh, really kicked it all off and, and had been a large part of it for many years. Uh, so the running community, the larger, larger community, will be mourning his passing. We will have more um, uh, online today and in tomorrow's paper, um, including a column from our former sports uh, editor here, Bill Higgins, who uh, had certainly uh, followed the race along throughout the years, and, and our sports department will be working on following up on that story. So check CapeCutTimes.com for more on that. Um, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for being here, Tanner. A lot to, to uh, get through here. Uh, tell your friends, share the link. Feel free to reach out with any story tips or ideas. Get in touch with Tanner or the other reporters by going to our website, capecodtimes.com, checking out all the emails there. Uh, we're where news starts on Cape Cod. Uh, until next week, we wish you a good morning and good luck. <laughs>